I had originally not planned on returning to the book of Matthew until after the first. However, as I was reading this past week um, and getting ready for today, I decided to take a look at chapter 17 to get ready for next week and realize that uh, the first part of chapter 17 actually fits very well into our Advent sequence, even though Advent is officially over with. Um, we did not celebrate or acknowledge, really, the fifth candle, which is the Christ candle. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 17, we are going to be focused on uh, Jesus as he begins preparing the disciples for his departure and eventually his second advent, which is kind of the point of the advent celebration in the first place. So we are going to be in uh, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13 this morning. And if you would, please stand with me as I read our passage. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this time of worship, as we listen to your word, as we study and we seek to understand how this event impacts our lives today, help us to listen, help us to hear your words. Uh, Father, help us to glorify you in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Now, this is one of the events that's recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels. Uh, here in Matthew 17, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, and Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. I'm going to be pointing to a couple of those different verses throughout. Okay, it's basically the same account. There are some differences uh, because of the different people who recorded it. Um, but in all three of them, the, the, it's something that is unusual in the Gospels is that we are given a period of time. Most of the time, Matthew just tells us that after this, then that. So we just know that something took place after something else took place. Thanks, Matthew. That really helps us with the timeline, right? Um, Matthew and Mark both tell us 
that after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain. Luke tells us it was about eight days. I love it when there's a discrepancy to start off a passage or an apparent discrepancy. Why is there a difference between Matthew and Mark and Luke? Well, there are a lot of different answers. I went out online and did some some research and some study. There are some answers that are kind of out there. You know, they're, they're... Obviously, these are two separate events, and uh, no, these are the same event. They're happening at the same time. This is the, the same recording, but there's a difference in what's being told to us. Uh, the, the best answer to the difference is that Luke included the day that Jesus told them at the end of chapter 16 that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So Luke included that day in his count, and he also included the day of the transfiguration in his count. Matthew and Mark probably didn't. After they left where Jesus gave that prophecy, six days passed, and then the seventh day, Jesus took the three disciples up the mountain. When possible, go with the easy answer, right? So it's just a matter of whether they included the time or not into their account. Luke being a very detail-oriented person, it would make sense that he included those two days where the other two did not. Regardless of the timing, though, this event is the next thing that happens after Jesus is telling the disciples what's going to happen next in his ministry. So far up to chapter 16, he has been in Galilee. He has been all over Galilee. He's been to the the east and to the west and to the north and to the south. He's been all over the Sea of Galilee, crossing it two or three times uh, over the course of just a couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel. He's fed the 5,000. He's fed the 4,000. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed people uh, from, from illnesses. He's made the lame to walk. He's done all kinds of stuff. And then we said in chapter 16, there was a shift in his teaching where he started teaching the disciples what comes next, which is, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles and I'm going to be crucified and I will rise again on the third day. And of course, that's where Peter jumps in and says, "Uh uh-uh, and Jesus tells him to... uh, stop following the things of man and start paying attention to the things of God. So after this happens, after this six-day period on the seventh day, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Don't know which mountain. I believe Mount Tibor is the uh, the traditional thought process is where this happens. Um, not really important. 
but, but it's Peter, James, and John. Why those three? What's significant about Peter, James, and John? Well, a couple of things. Uh, number one, when you look at the listings of the disciples in the Gospels, they are almost always presented in groups of three. So there's 12 of them, so there would be four groups of three given. The three that are most commonly referred to are Peter, James, and John. They're kind of the inner circle of the disciples. Wherever Jesus goes, those three go too. When we see the the debate going on between who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who is it that's debating? Peter, James, and John. Right? When we see the the <laughs> when we see a mother show up and say, can you please make sure that my boys are at your right hand in your kingdom? Whose mother is it? James and John, right? And of course, Peter is the mouthpiece. He's the one who's always speaking for the group, normally with one foot or the other in his mouth at the same time. Um, also, we, we talked about back here in chapter 16, where Jesus was talking about uh, on this rock I will build my church, we, we mentioned that Peter was a representative there of the apostles. And when Jesus says on this rock, he was talking about on the rock of the apostles, he would build the church. Well, the work of the apostles is what we have in Scripture. So just as Peter was representative of the rest of the apostles here, these three represent the apostles, the rest of the body of the church. In Luke's account, Luke tells us that Jesus took them up the mountain so that he could pray. It's not the first time that Jesus went off to be by himself or with his inner circle to go pray. In fact, right before he was betrayed, he took Peter, James, and John a little ways further into the garden at Gethsemane. And he went and prayed, and then he came back out, and what were they doing? They were sleeping. And he rebuked them, and he says, come on, I'm just asking you to stay awake for a little while and pray with me. And he goes back into the garden, he comes back out, what are they doing? I feel their pain. All right, there are those who, who uh, in teaching spiritual disciplines, will tell you, never try to pray right before you go to sleep. All right, if you think that your prayer time is going to happen when you put your head on the pillow, you're wrong. Because your prayer is going to go, Father, and that's it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. All right? So in this case, Luke tells us that Jesus went up the mountain to pray. Luke also tells us that as Jesus was praying, guess what those three did? They fell asleep. (laughs) Matthew leaves that out. Maybe he's feeling kind. I don't know. Uh, More likely, because... Uh, Matthew was getting the news from Peter, James, and John. They left it out when they told him what had happened. I'm just saying. Um, As Jesus was praying, his appearance changed. Verse 2 says he was transfigured. It's not a word that we use very often in the English except to describe this. Uh, Trans meaning across and figured meaning shape or image. Um, We're told that he became 
bright white. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. This is one of those cases where I really, 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 really like the old King James translation of a passage. If you, if you look, if you have a King James, look at uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 3. If you don't have, the Pew Bible might be, or it may be a new King James, I don't know. Um, but in Mark 9.3, it says, And his raiment, his clothes, became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Why do I like that? Well, for you younger folks, a fuller was a launderer, a professional launderer. And the job of a fuller was to make your whites white. Right? And the image here is that his clothing was whiter than the whitest white that a professional launderer could produce. Now, I've talked to you guys about why it's not good for man to be alone, and it has nothing to do with me doing laundry, right? My laundry gets separated into two piles when I'm living the bachelor lifestyle, clean and dirty. If it's clean, then I can pull from it and wear it. If it's dirty, it goes in the washing machine altogether on cold. White, dark, red, green, blue, purple, it doesn't matter. It goes in the washing machine on cold. Because if I waited until I had a load of darks and a load of whites and a load of colors and bright colors and light colors and and in-between colors and all of those things that my beautiful bride separates our laundry into, I wouldn't be able to wash laundry for a month because I only wear so many clothes. But I do know that washing my clothes like that, I wind up with t-shirts that ain't quite white. No, they're not pink. I don't have a lot of red clothes. They're just not quite white. What color is this shirt? It's white, unless you look at it closely enough. Right? And it's not really that white. Because everything that we have that is white is dim. The brightness, the white that Jesus was showing was the whitest. It's impossible for us to imagine this color white. The people in Buffalo or Erie, Pennsylvania right now, should they step outside on one of those rare occasions when the sun comes out, they probably had the closest picture. It's called snow blind, because you can't see nothing. That's what Jesus looked like. And this is a picture of Jesus in his glorified body prior to his resurrection. It's not the first time we see an encounter with God happening on a mountain either. In in the book of Exodus, Moses climbs up the mountain, and he meets with God, right? And while he meets with God, we see the glory cloud settle on top of the mountain. So much the the rumblings, the thunder, the, the sounds were enough to terrify the people and make them turn to Aaron and say, we, we need to worship something. Make us something we can worship. Here's all of our gold. And Aaron threw it into the fire and a calf popped out. 
because he was a four-year-old. And well, Moses was on the mountain. He asked to see God's glory. Remember? Show me your glory. God says, well, Moses, I would, but I can't. Because if you were to see my glory, you would die. So instead, here's what I'm going to do. There's a little cutout in this rock. I'm going to tuck you into this cutout, and I have a suspicion that Moses was actually with his back facing the outside of the cutout in the rock. And I will pass by, and I will allow you to see the trailing edge of the hem of my robe. My backwards parts. And that's all Moses could even glance at without being immediately destroyed by coming face to face with God's glory. In the book of 1 Kings, Elijah has a vision of God on Mount Horeb after he flees from the wrath of Queen Jezebel. Remember, he, he flees after he calls down fire from heaven. One of the most triumphant passages in the whole of the Old Testament where the prophets of Baal are all gathered together and, and he says, okay, we're going to have a contest. You guys make your altar and I'm going to make my altar and you sacrifice your bull and I'm going to sacrifice my bull. And after you're done with your sacrifice, you call down fire from heaven and, and if Baal burns that sacrifice up, then we will know that Baal is a true God. But if he doesn't, and and Jehovah sends down fire from heaven, then we'll know that he's the true God. How's that sound to everybody? And in true democratic fashion, everybody was for it. We want to worship the right one. And so the prophets of Baal, they did their thing, and they started dancing and singing and and, and jumping up and down, and nothing happened. And like a good man of God, Elijah just stood there quietly and waited, right? No. No, he poked at him. Yeah, yell louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. Or the really insulting one. Perhaps he's gone to the bathroom. So they cut themselves and they worked themselves into a frenzy until they just dropped over from exhaustion and nothing happened. And then if it wasn't enough to show off in front of everybody, Elijah says, bring me some water. And he douses his entire altar. And he douses it again, and he douses it again until the meat is saturated, the wood is saturated, there is a moat of water around this thing. And he says, that's probably wet enough. And then he turns his face to heaven and he calls on God, and God sends down fire that takes the sacrifice and the altar and the water and the stones and everything else. And after that triumph, where he leads the people to slaughter the false prophets of Baal, Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. And he hightails it to the woods. And he hides in the wilderness. And he goes to the mountain. He goes to Mount Horeb and he calls out to God. And God appears to him, not in the fire and not in the wind, right? With the still small voice. And God says, what are you doing? You're not the only one. I've preserved a remnant. Do you trust me? 
In both of those cases, God spoke to these men to give them the message that they needed to hear regarding the mission that they were on. Moses is leading the people of Israel from Egypt to the Promised Land. For 400 years, the people of Israel have been captives in Egypt. They have been slaves in Egypt. They have not had their own government. They have not had their own economy. They have not had to rule at all. They didn't even have their own society to speak of. And so when Moses was given the law, it wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was the legal structure. What do you do if your ox gets loose and kills somebody? How do we handle that? What do we do legally? When Elijah went, he needed God to tell him to have hope. That all was not lost. That Jezebel was not the one in control. And so he went back and he preached to God's people. And now, in chapter 17, who appears beside the glorified Jesus but Moses and Elijah? The same two men. And there's a couple other things that are significant about this. The Old Testament, when we refer to the Old Testament in the New Testament, the usual division is given as the Law and the Prophets. There is a third division in the, uh, actually a third and a fourth division if you want to be technical about it. When you look at the Old Testament, you have the Law, which is the first five books, right? And then you have the Prophets, which are the major and the minor Prophets. And smack in between them are the historical books like Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. Yeah, all the Awana kids are going through there. See, trying to help you guys out. All right. And then you also have the wisdom literature, which would be Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. But generally speaking, when the Jews talked about Scripture, they said the law and the prophets. Who represents the law? Moses. Since he was the law giver, he brought the law down from God and gave it to the people. Elijah is not the prophet. Uh, that, that particular title is reserved for Isaiah. Uh, the Jewish people called Isaiah the prophet, period, because his prophecy was... Uh, probably the most iconic in Israel's history. Um, But Elijah was the one that Malachi said would come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he's the one who would turn people's hearts back to God. So he is representative of the prophets. So, So what we see here on this mountain, as Jesus is transfigured, we see the law... The Old Testament law and the prophets with Jesus, the gospel. The total fulfillment of Scripture is presented here for us on this mountain, culminating with the glorification of Jesus at his resurrection. Because he's in his resurrection body, he is in his glorified state here.
also included, even though we don't often think of it here at this point, because of the vantage point that the account is given. I mean, we're told this as though it is happening to the person who's writing it, right? Matthew tells us this is what happened. But here we also have the apostles. Peter, James, and John. Representative of the New Testament. So the canon of Scripture is presented to us with Jesus at the center. The law, the prophets, and the apostles all together on the mountain with Jesus at the center. Luke tells us that the three were discussing Jesus' departure. The word there is actually the word exodus. Jesus' exodus. When's Jesus departing? At his crucifixion, right? And then ultimately at his ascension. After he comes back, he goes back to heaven. So they're talking about the events that were to come next in Jesus' ministry. Just like he'd been telling the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. That's what they were talking about. And I'm going to try my hardest to go easy on Peter now. At some point in this discussion, Matthew makes it sound as though it's immediately when Moses and Elijah appear. Uh, Luke tells us that it's, it's after they were having this discussion about Jesus' exodus. Peter sees Moses, he sees Elijah, he sees Jesus standing in front of him having a conversation. So he chimes in, in true Peter fashion. Jesus, it's a good thing we're here because I can build a tent for all three of you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. Now we pick on Peter, but here in this case, let me ask you, which one of us would not say the same thing? Which one of us would not want to hang out on a mountaintop with Moses and Elijah and Jesus and to have that moment captured forever? There's a problem with that. Jesus still had stuff to do, right? Jesus still had to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and be raised and and then ascend to heaven so that what could happen? The coming of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of important for us, the church, right? But, But Peter wasn't thinking like that. In fact, I'm not entirely sure what Peter was thinking other than he wanted to capture that moment. Because obviously that meant that Jesus was about to do something big. And as Peter is speaking up about building tents, for the second time recorded in Jesus' ministry, the audible voice of God is heard. We don't hear God's voice very often. In Scripture, audibly. Any of you ever heard God's voice audibly? I'm afraid to. I really don't want to. Well, I think that would be cool. I know. But here, Jesus is glowing, Right? And Moses and Elijah are standing there with him, and Peter is focused on the three of them and says, I can build a tent for each of you. 
we are then told that a bright cloud came and overshadowed them. Think about that word for just a minute. How has Jesus been described? Shining brighter than the sun. And a bright cloud came and did what? Think about that for just a minute. The cloud was big enough and bright enough it cast a shadow over Jesus who was showing shining like the sun. And then God speaks. I don't feel bad for the disciples falling on their face. Peter, James, and John probably trying to figure out a way they could dig themselves through the mountain. God speaks, and His message is very similar to that when Jesus was baptized. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And I think that serves to confirm the identity of Jesus. Peter's there, right? Peter correctly identified Jesus when he was acting as the representative of the disciples. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Here God is confirming that. Peter, you got one. And, oh, by the way, I am well pleased with him. He is my son, and what he is doing is my will. He is my son, and he has brought my words to my people. In him I am well pleased. But it doesn't stop there. There's another little phrase added on. Listen to him. Now, it might be that this was targeted directly at Peter. I don't know. But it's a message for all of us. God doesn't just want the disciples to know who Jesus is and to acknowledge his teaching, but he wants them to listen to the teaching. Actively listen. Not just to hear what he says, but to let it change the way they think and act. Listen to Him. And so they fell on their face. If they fell on their face here, what does that mean prior to that? They weren't on their faces. That's odd. Most of the time when somebody... I mean, look how the people of Israel felt when Moses came out of the tabernacle. Right? His face is reflecting a little bit of that glory and they ran away from him. Luke tells us that Peter, James, and John had dozed off and and they were startled awake when, when Jesus starts glowing like the sun. Right? You ever have that? falling asleep and somebody turns on a cell phone somewhere in your vicinity? You know what I'm talking about? Ah, the sun, turn it down! That's what woke them up. But they kept looking at Jesus and Moses and Elijah. But here, 
Now that they're awake, and God jumps in and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. Now they're afraid. I don't think this is something we can overlook. What does the book of Proverbs tell us is the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. And, and like most preachers, I have, I have even preached, that when we talk about the fear of the Lord, our emphasis is on awe, because God is so different from what we are. Our emphasis is on reverence, because of His holiness. Uh, our, our emphasis is on um, respect, right? And we tend to minimize the idea of terror because we're not supposed to be afraid of God like that. We don't want people to be afraid of God like that. Preachers don't want people to be afraid of God like that because a God that you're afraid of, you can't approach, I got to tell you, we've done a terrible job. We should never, ever, 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 ever feel so comfortable with the idea of standing before God that it doesn't cause us terror. Absolute terror. Do you suffer a phobia? Are you afraid of heights, afraid of spiders, afraid of snakes, afraid of mice, all of the above? Combine all of those fears together. I know that all y'all suffer this one. Afraid of public speaking. The thought of standing before God should give us more fear than all of those phobias. Just by His sheer power, He spoke the universe into existence. If you're not aware of how far from God's holiness you are, stop and think for just a moment. One sin. How many of us have sinned? Go ahead and give me the Sunday school answer. Everybody raises their hand. All of us have. All right, let me get a little bit more. <laughs> let me get a little bit more specific. How many of you have ever told a lie? An untruth, either directly or by not telling the full truth, by commission or omission. All right. How many of you have ever stolen something? Even if it's just a stick of gum or a cookie out of a cookie jar after you've been told you can't have a cookie. Uh-huh. Okay. All right, let's see. Um, here's one for the youngsters in the crowd. And by youngster, I mean anybody under the age of 40 years old. How many of you have ever disobeyed your parents? I know my kids better have their hands up. Four of the commandments. Four of the Ten Commandments. Those are the easy ones. 
I mean, if I had said how many of y'all have committed murder, best chances are nobody's going to raise their hand. And I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> okay? Four of the commandments, and everybody in here raised their hand. What does Paul tell us the wages of sin is? Death. To stand before God with any sin on our account, we should expect death. Why does God tell Moses, you can't see my glory? Because you are a sinful person. And here God brings His glory cloud down and speaks directly to Peter, James, and John. Peter, who one chapter ago, six to eight days before this happened, Peter, who just contradicted Jesus. Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, who just said, you're not going to Jerusalem and get killed. We ought to have that kind of fear. When we come before God, His perfect holiness, His perfect righteousness, we can't stand in front of that. Except in the name of Christ. And so what happens next is the epitome of Jesus' ministry. Because God shows up and the disciples act the way we ought to act. Absolutely frozen in terror. And then Matthew tells us, I love this, look at chapter 17, verse 7. Chapter 17, verse 7. What's the first word that you have listed there in chapter 17, verse 7? Then? Anybody got something different? But. The Greek word, the Greek word there is more of a however or a but than it is anything else. Alright? I have heard pastors get in trouble for calling this the uh, the apostles, but uh, it, it, I like the term holy however better. Okay? So, so after they fall on their faces, but Jesus walks over to them and He touches them and He says... Rise and have no fear. It is only because of Jesus that we can stand before God and pray. It is only because of Jesus that we can stand here in this... Look. What is it that I do every Sunday? I preach. I proclaim the Word of God. Right? Public speaking doesn't scare me. But every Sunday, 
these stairs do. You know why? Because as soon as I get up here, I'm teaching God's Word. Who am I to do that? There is no time in my life I am more dreadfully aware of how unworthy I am to do this than when I'm in the middle of doing this. And because of Jesus, I can. Jesus comes to the disciples and he takes away their fear. Only in Jesus, fully God and fully man, can we encounter the righteousness, the holiness, the justice of God and stand without terror. Because only in Jesus has that price been paid. When the disciples opened their eyes, all they saw was Jesus. They had seen the law, they had seen the prophets, and they heard the voice of God, and when they looked again, all they saw was the gospel. That's Jesus' ministry. As we close up, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are coming down off the hill, and Jesus says, don't tell nobody. How many times has Jesus told them that? He raises, he raises a, a young girl from the dead, and he looks at her parents and says, now don't tell anybody, because that'll work. Right? He heals the, the, the leper, don't tell anybody. He makes the blind man to see. He makes the lame man to walk. Don't tell anybody. Finally, he says, don't tell anybody. Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why? Why do the scribes say, the experts in the Scripture, the preachers, why are we taught that Elijah must come? We just saw him. Why can't we tell anybody? Because if you're the son of man and Elijah must come, we need to let everybody know Elijah just showed up. The time is here. (coughs) Jesus says Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. Elijah did come. Remember my cousin John? Where's he at right now? They killed him. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. If they killed him... Now now look, Peter, James, John, listen closely. 
you just said, why do we have to keep it quiet if the preachers are telling us that Elijah has to come first? So let me, let me, let me give you Jesus' answer in Bill speak. Okay? Because even though the preacher kept telling everybody that Elijah had to come first, look at what they did to him. And oh, by the way, they're going to do the same thing to me. Just because the scribes told everybody what had to happen doesn't mean everybody had to listen. This is one of those cases where we need to be extremely cautious about judging the people that we read about in Scripture. We raise our eyebrows at those who persecuted and executed Jesus. We wonder how the Jews could have missed all the signs that pointed at the arrival of the Messiah. We need to remember that we have the same genetic problem that they had. And that's our sin nature. Passed down from Adam. We have the same sin nature that causes us to cower before God, as we rightly should, but it blinds us to those same things that the Scripture says has to happen before Jesus returns. And by the way, I'm not talking about the maybe things. I'm not talking about the things that certain eschatological schools say have to happen and others don't. I'm talking about the things that are cut, dried, and clear. When we look at the scribes and we look at the Pharisees and we look at the Sadducees and we look at we look at even Judas who betrayed Jesus, it's really easy to ask the question, how could they be so blind I'm going to answer the question for you take a look at the book of Ephesians all the way through chapter 2 particularly verses 8 and 9 go ahead Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 if you want to know how they could be so blind. If you want to know how the people in the world today, the people in South Mississippi, here's a statistic for you while you're turning to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Within five miles of Highway 90, so let's say the beach, within five miles of the beach, north, 80% of the population is unchurched. I'm not 100% positive, but I think we're further north than five miles from the beach. Eighty percent of the population on the Gulf Coast is unchurched. 60% of that same population has never been churched. 
These aren't folks that used to come to church and decided against it. These are people who've never been to church. What makes them different from us? We're smarter, right? No. No, I will tell you, I have nothing on the intelligence of the people that work at Stennis Space Center that launch rockets into the sky. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. What makes us different? Yep. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What makes us different than the scribes and Pharisees? What makes us different than that 80% of the people who are unchurched? God's grace. What are we going to do about it? There you go. For next year, the Gulf Coast Baptist Association, that's the association that we are members of, is uh, kind of rejuvenating their 3D discipling program, discipling disciples to disciple. Uh, sounds kind of goofy, but if you know the people on the strategy team, you'll know why. Um, we're told to make disciples, right? We're told to make disciples of all nations. Well, what does a disciple do? A disciple makes more disciples, right? And discipling is actually a process by which we learn. Well, this year's emphasis for their discipleship program is discipling disciples to pray. Next week, I'm going to bring some cards, some reminder cards for you all. Put up on your refrigerator, your bathroom mirror, your front door. I don't know, tape it in the middle of your windshield so you can see it. No, that's a bad idea. Right? Put it somewhere you will be reminded. It has a daily reminder for a particular people group within the association or in this area to pray for. That's step one. You will find, particularly in praying for those that are unchurched, it's very hard to earnestly pray for people and not care about them. And if we care about them, then it becomes easier for us to reach out to them and share Christ. Okay? So that's our challenge starting next week for the next year is to pray for those particular people groups. Okay? and to share God's grace with the people that we encounter.